Welcome to Season 12 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. In addition to being a popular keynote speaker at some of the world's most prestigious educational conferences, Gary Steger is a journalist, teacher, educator, consultant, professor, software developer, publisher and school administrator. An elementary teacher by training, he has taught students from preschool through to doctoral studies. In 1990, Dr. Steger led professional development in the world's first laptop schools and has played a significant role in the early days of online education. He is the founder of the Constructing Modern Knowledge Summer Institute for Educators. In this wide-ranging discussion, we talked about many things, including the power of jazz, the significance of Seymour Papert, and artificial intelligence. This was a wonderful conversation with a true educational icon. Professor Gary Steger, um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great to be with you. Where are you? Uh, where are you phoning in from? I'm in a suburb of Los Angeles called Torrance, California. Lovely. And what's the weather like today? Typical question. Uh, about 70, 72 degrees Fahrenheit. So I don't know. What's that about? It's nice. 15, 15 degrees. Yeah, it's it's nice. Short sleeve Lovely. weather. Just finished playing tennis. Fantastic. And and Gary, quite possibly the most important conversation for our discussion. What's your coffee order for when I can finally nip over the Atlantic and uh, buy your coffee? Ah, I drink black iced tea. Black something iced? That's something that's impossible to get in your part of the world. Right. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Is that a recent... Uh, drink of choice or is that something which you've been consuming for a while no i've drunk iced tea for a very long time um i used to drink sort of bottled stuff loaded with sugar in as is available in australia but um since i've gotten a little healthier and worried about calories i just drink it black and i make liters of it at a time and drink way too much of it fantastic and uh is there a book that you have read recently? It could be within your sphere of expertise in education, or it could be much more broadly that has caused you to stop and uh, reconsider a few things in your life. Huh. Um, I'm actually reviewing a lot of books that I've read in the past because I'm thinking about starting a, a progressive educator book club. So I'm trying to decide on given the thousands of books that I own and millions that i haven't read um which books would i share with with educators who i wanted to right. um reacquaint with some powerful ideas um so i've been um reading a lot of frank smith and herb cole and um there's an, a professor from columbia who i just purchased a book by called named bettina love um has written a new book called punished for dreaming about um race and education in our system here um but um and 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 also i just reread 
Roger Shank's book, The Cognitive Computer, which yes, wow. was a book for lay, pe lay people about artificial intelligence published in 1984, and reread chapter seven of Seymour Papert's seminal book, Mindstorms, Children, Computers, and Powerful Ideas, because chapter seven is called Logo, Colon, um, Roots, AI, and Piaget. Um, for because as you probably are aware, you know, um, apparently education was revolutionized over Christmas holidays <laughs> and yes. everyone's gone a AI crazy. And for the folks who are interested in a, a more humane, sensible um, notion of children and learning and education and artificial intelligence, it would behoove them to read the vision set forth in 1980 by Seymour Papert in Mindstorms. Mm -hmm. And the fact that so few people are talking about that is proof that no one read up to chapter seven. Right, right. That's interesting. Do you think that should be essential reading uh, for educators? Yes, but I but I differ from some of my colleagues who also work with Seymour Papert or, or admirers of his work. Um, that was his first major book. I, I I really recommend the second one, which is the Children's Machine. Mm. Um, that colleagues re referred to that as the book in which he discovers teachers. I think it's a little, a little more accessible. The examples are more practical. Um, Papert published three books for, for you know, the mass mass readership. Um, Mindstorms, the Children's Machine, and the Connected Family, and they they all are kind of a fractal of each other. Um, they all deal with it, essentially the same powerful ideas, but for different audiences. Mindstorms was was intended for academics, and and in later versions of Mindstorms, Papert actually wrote in the forward about, yeah. about how had he had he realized that other people were going to read it, he wouldn't have been so arrogant. The examples wouldn't have been so as as um, obtuse. Um, the children's machine is the one that's about teaching and learning and, and the connected family is about learning at home and, and families learning together. But the, like I said, the, the same ideas are in, are sort of in all three, um, yeah. just from a different point of view for a different audience. So I recommend to educators that they really should, should pay some attention to the children's machine. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, I'll put uh, the links to all the resources that you talk about um, in the show notes so people can access that. Um, one of the things I, I truly love about doing this podcast is that my uh, shopping cart uh, continues to be filled uh, with books that I should have read. Uh, and so uh, there's a constant stream of new books coming into our household. So I appreciate that. Uh, you probably just cost me a couple of hundred dollars there, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I appreciate it. And uh, Gary, I was just wondering um, if you could have a dinner party uh, with anybody, obviously your family doesn't include, uh, isn't included in the, the headcount. Um, who would you love to be there? Who would you like to sit down and have a meal with either people who are currently with us or people that have passed? Huh. Um, you know, I've been really fortunate in that I've I've been able to work with most of my um, education heroes and and get to know a lot of them quite well, um, and uh, as well as my my musical heroes. I'm I'm quite an admirer and aficionado of 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 jazz, and I've gotten to know a lot of the great jazz musicians in my lifetime. Um, I I think. You know, my my colleague and friend Seymour Papert would be at the, at the dinner table. Um, the great 
author and educator and civil rights leader, Jonathan Kozel, who's a friend of mine who I haven't seen. I mentioned Herb Cole before. Um, I never got to have a conversation with Frank Smith, although he would be interesting. Um, I Everything I know about teaching teachers, I learned from Dan and Molly Watt. And my summer institute, Constructing Modern Knowledge, is based on the experiences that I had learning from them when I was a young educator. Um, there's an Australian educator named David Loader, who's mm-hmm. who was the principal of the first school in the world where every kid had a laptop. Yes. And I think he's yeah. probably the, I think he's probably the most consequential school leader of the last half century. Wow. I just had the great joy of of having um, lunch with him when I was in Melbourne recently. Um, you know, so those are you know, and, and musician friends like the great saxophonist Jimmy Heath and Phil Woods and the singer yeah. pianist Freddie Cole, um, people who had a great joy and um love of what they did love and that. willing and willingness to share what they love and knew and 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 their expertise with um with others who were interested in what what they were so passionate about yeah. it, it it's really interesting gary just how many times music uh comes up musicians and um it, it's wonderful how many um like i said how many guests that i speak to that um that talk about jazz music and how that has such an impact on them um why has that been particularly meaningful uh for you and what is it about jazz that is particularly interesting to you well i aspired to be a jazz musician until my conspicuous lack of talent caught up with me (laughs) and i was fortunate to attend a high school where i had in year 12 three music classes a day and two music classes a day Right. The three years before that and had two working jazz musicians as as my um, instrumental music teachers um, when I was 13 years old the great trumpet player and composer and arranger band leader Thad Jones played at my high school the great Roy Haynes who's pretty much half of American music um, music history played at my high school um, and it was a way of being part of something bigger than myself it it, it brings beauty and joy and purpose um, I'm, I'm gobsmacked by the arrogance of youth that was required to think that I could possibly ever be good at it. Now that I understand the remarkable complexity of what some of my friends, um, are able to accomplish on their instruments. Love that. Um, and, and so I, I, I never, ha- I'm kind of proud of the decision. I don't even remember the exact moment, but the decision when I, that I made that, the world didn't need any more bad musicians. Um, and I've, I spend a lot of my time and disposable income attending concerts, okay. you know, probably half dozen or more a month. I'm heading to New York in a few weeks and I'll see two or three uh, performances a night. Um, and I feel sorry for people who have never had one note of Wayne Shorter soprano sax reduced them to tears. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of my passion, which in education is, is viewed as defect, um, is rooted in the fact that I was fortunate enough to have some experiences around the age of 12 years old, um, where I fell in love with programming computers and composing music and playing music and being around musicians. Um, that that have brought so much joy and purpose and meaning and beauty and per, to my life, and uh, the re- all of my days have been committed to 
assuring that future generations of kids have the same quality of experience. I love that, Gary. And I, uh, do you think there are some, uh, what are some of the parallels do you think between um, computing and composing? Because um, on the surface, it would seem like um, that uh, marriage would not work. But like I said, the amount of um, people that I've spoken to that are um, in, uh, engaged with and uh, championing technology that also have a love for jazz music, that also have a love for art and dance and drama is really quite um, really quite spectacular. So why do you think those two work so well together? Well, I, I knew from an early age that this it felt the same in my head what was happening. Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I think there is there's the 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 solving problems within constraints um the the immediate feedback the debugging the fo- the different paths to a to a working solution yeah um but i but i think the, you know if we expand the lens a little bit i i think it's fundamental to democracy interesting um, you know you know the reason why kids should program computers is because it gives them agency over an increasingly complex and technologically sophisticated world. Yeah. Yeah. And at a time of, at a time of rising authoritarianism and fake news and propaganda and um, threats to democracy, um, it, it would, it makes sense for kids to understand systems and to be at the center of them. And playing music is the ultimate democratic act. Because it's it's not just learning in a group, as my colleagues in Reggio Emilia point out. It's learning as a group. Yeah, it's 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 supporting one another and and making something beautiful that's that's negotiated um, with other humans in real time within you know within constraints. Yeah, I I think that's so true. A, a number of years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of uh, traveling to uh, South America, to Chile. And as you, uh, I'm sure you're aware, there's been a history of um, uh, oppression around the arts um, mm-hmm. for many, many years. And what was so wonderful was to go to a number of uh, performances in Chile and and just see this incredible resurgence of the arts, whether that be music or dance or drama. And it was really wonderful to just to, I hadn't appreciated until then just the incredible role that these um uh, that these things play in in just building cohesive and critical and and collaborative societies and um it, it's really wonderful to to hear you talk it, about it, such passion yeah it what it's what makes us human and and when you well yeah, I've done a little bit of work in Latin America and um not only do they feel that way about music and I think there's a great deal to learn. Um, from El Sistema, which is the Venezuelan youth orchestra movement, yes. where um, th- where from the second you express an interest, you are in in, in an orchestra, um, yeah. and wow. even if you have to count to seven million and play one note, you're part of something larger than yourself. Yes, and they don't call them schools; they call them nucleos. And um, a colleague of mine, Trisha Tunstall, who wrote a fantastic book called um, Changing Lives about Elsie Stemma and the great conductor Gustavo Dudamel who came out of that system and now conducts the LA Philharmonic. Um, she talked about how these nucleos create an alternative universe, an alternative reality for the kids. Yeah. Where where yeah. they're they're part of something, they're part of something beautiful. They're they're making something together. Their parents 
are proud of them. And when they have to get off work and dress nicer to come watch their children perform, there's a sense that, that there's a sense of hope and direction. And, and I find this, there's a similar approach in Latin America to education as well. Wow. That, 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 that what teachers do is sacred. And I mean, I, I'll tell you a, a funny story. I was, um, I don't know, Shanghai into, if that's a, <laughs> might be a politically incorrect term at this point, but I was recruited, enticed to be part of a two-week-long workshop for teachers on an island off the coast of Maine with almost no internet access and nothing to do and limited food options. And Seymour Papert was ostensibly organizing it, although you would rarely use Seymour and organize in the same sentence. And um, and there were a few dozen educators gathered in this meeting room when when I arrived, and we went around the circle as one does, introducing ourselves. And there were about fifty percent of the educators from the United States, if I remember correctly. They're from a lot of them were from the state of Iowa, kind of in the Midwest, a rural state. Yeah. And the other half were from Costa Rica and Chile and Peru, and and. The Americans all introduced themselves by saying, hi, I'm Gary. My principal's a jerk. Hi, I'm Matthew. I don't have enough printer paper. Hi, I'm Mary. You know, my laptop won't charge. Yeah. And and then they got to the to the Latin educators who said things like, I'm here because this is a way of restoring democracy to my people. Wow. And and, and it was like really I mean, it, it was it was sort of Earth one and Earth two. There was there was a very different way of viewing the world. And, you know, all of those countries have a tradition of radical educators as well. Well, yeah. whether it's, you know, pa- Paulo Freire and every every one of those countries in that part of the world has their their radical educators that that um, folks who are interested in the kind of work that I'm interested in are, are familiar with. So. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it, Gary? I mean, to hear that, I mean, I'm sure that would really put things into perspective. I mean, you've got teachers, as they do in Australia, complaining about what they don't have, um, but then other educators um, really talking about the cause and the uh, and the ideals behind education and how it can really transform and change a generation. I think it's really wonderful. Um, Gary, I just wanted to take you back to, uh, to when you were at school. Um, was there a was there a teacher that made a difference in your life? And did you ever get a chance to, um, did you ever get a chance to thank them? So uh, education was a mixed, schooling was a mixed bag for me. It was mostly terrible um, for a lot of reasons. They are not, not particularly unique to me. Um, and yet there was almost always a teacher I could hang out with. And and so from the very earliest days, I not only had adults who I could form a positive relationship with, um, but I also was acutely aware of how preposterous the system was. Wow. Um, and then and then by the time I got to sort of what what we would consider middle school or junior high and high school, there were there were teachers who I had quite strong relationships with and many of them I'm still in touch with today yeah and and I have have thanked them in person and in writing and yeah and in, in other forms yeah 
And and what do you think, Gary, were, were some of those qualities of those great teachers? Because, and I'll just take you on a little sort of um, uh, a sidetrack for a moment. I had this one teacher um, who I had the privilege of interviewing um, a number of episodes ago called Mrs. Taylor Jones. And she was my year three teacher. And I have absolutely no idea what she taught me. Um, I'm sure there would be something in there about fractions and and maths and English and but what I what I do remember is how I felt um, when I went into her classroom, and I was wondering if that was a sort of a similar vein that you felt when when you think about some of these great teachers in your life. Do you remember the content, or do you remember the feeling that you had when they interacted with you? Oh no, I don't remember any content at all. But, but <laughs> not at all. But no one does. That 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 no yeah. one does, and that shouldn't come as any surprise to you. I mean, my 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 colleague Brian Harvey says if you if you want to make if you want to reform schools, the first thing you do is throw out half the curriculum, any half. Um, you <laughs> any know, half. we we have a morbid we have a morbidly obese curriculum that we just keep adding to, and it's creating all kinds of problems for teachers and kids, and none of it actually matters. Um, that said. Um, you know, I have I have a lot of kind of negative memories of primary school first. So I'll start there. I mean, I, I never tell these stories, but um, in second grade, I remember my teacher tied me to my chair with a jump rope, with a skipping rope. And I remember making her cry over the Arbor Day poems that I led an insurrection and refused to read. Um, and and oh. I also I also I also thought I invite I invented um, forgery when I forged my mother's signature, like in crayon on a, on a letter once about me being in trouble. I was really proud of myself. I thought I had invented that idea. Um, so that was sort of second grade and third grade. We had a young teacher who had like weekly dance parties. And I liked that. And it didn't even matter that there was a teletype connected to a mainframe timeshare system in the next classroom, because although I would have probably liked to use the computer dance, dance parties was good. Um, (laughs) Um, but by by junior high, so that's sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, um, I, I had a couple interesting teachers. One was my high school band, my, my middle school band director, Dick Lucas, who for some reason ran an after school tennis program and I played tennis for the first time with him. Wow. Wow. Um, and I t- and we played music that was always too hard for us and we knew it was too hard for us, but we knew it was kind of special. They were playing music that was too hard to, for us. And and he passed away a number of years ago, but he ended up becoming a student of mine. I've stayed in touch with him until he died. And he came to workshops of mine and such later on. I had Mr. Jones, who taught me how to program computers in year seven and made me feel smart for the first time in my life. Um, and then there were two social studies teachers, you know, wow. history, if you will. Um, and, and they're interesting, given the, per, the current climate. Um, one, one I never talk about, but I'm in touch with fairly regularly. Um, and a guy named Mr. Miller. And um, Mr. Miller was kind of a, a wild and crazy, one might have accused them of being a hippie back then, um, history teacher. And given the current political climate in which teachers are being accused of indoctrination and books are being banned and burned and teachers are being fired in the United States for reading the diary of Anne Frank, um, Hack Miller actually had his politics on the classroom bulletin board wow i mean there was no he wasn't neutral he was a human who had political views and he shared them with us and i don't think anyone was damaged by this i think we were engaged by it and if we wanted to argue with him about it i'm sure that that was possible there was another 
social studies teacher, though, who I who I think about a lot because he was the whole package, a guy named Bob Prail. Um, I had him for seventh grade social studies. And Mr. Prail was the kind of teacher that anyone who had him had their life irrevocably improved by the experience. Wow. It is also the case that the system hated Mr. Prail and tried everything in its power to make him miserable every day of his career. Wow. Um, so they did it in ways big and small, subtle things like every time the bell rang, Mr. Prail had to gather all his belongings and move to another classroom. Because although most teachers had a classroom assigned to them, um, Mr. Prail liked children too much and the children liked him too much. And the system's reaction to that was, let's, you know, let's make him move every 43 minutes. Um, and we made a film, we read Uncle Tom's Cabin, which we had to buy ourselves. And we made a film of it. And another class read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. And they made a film back in the days when it was hard to make a film. Um, he got accused of teaching Eastern religions because he was teaching us how to, to relax or meditate or deep breathe or something, which seemed perfectly appropriate for seventh graders. He never went anywhere near the textbook. And near the end of his career, um, he had at first told me that, I said, how long are you going to do this, Prale? And he said, oh, man, I'm healthy. I could do this another 20 years. And then about a year later, he said, hey, you know, Stager, I'm quitting. I said, why? He says, because I'd like to be able to swim. No, I'm sorry. I'd like to be able to ski or or ride my bike once in a while. And I thought, how broken is a system that's so inflexible that you lose a master teacher like that because you can't figure out a way to let them work yeah. a few ex a few less hours. And and to surprise him before he retired, I flew cross country and walked into his classroom. And the kids were working on these elaborate projects where they were designing cartoon characters that were in historical fiction that they were writing and they were going to be re reading those to the kids in the primary school down the street and they were all they were all deeply engaged in this like i said this elaborate project i don't know all the details of it um and after he introduced me to the class he said i'm, I'm terribly sorry to, to interrupt you while you're working on your project but he said i have a dilemma and as soon as the kids heard mr prale say i have a problem they they perked up and they were hanging on his every word. And he said, you know, we were reading Elie Wiesel's book, Night, and I'm thrilled that you all bought it with your own money. And I'm really proud of you and the maturity with which you're approaching the serious subject of the Holocaust. And the discussions we're having are really quite moving and riveting. Um, but the chapter wants me to, I'm sorry, but the school district says I have to finish chapter eight in the textbook by the end of the week. So I've thought really long and hard about this, and I've decided that I'm going to give you an enhanced study guide for the chapter. And one of the little innocent kids raised their hand and said, uh, Mr. Prale, what's an enhanced study guide? And Prale said, well, if you remember in last chapter, I gave you a study guide which had all the questions that were going to be on the test. The enhanced study guide has all the questions and all the answers that are going to be on the test. And without even a giggle, the kid said, okay, and he went back to working on their projects. Wow. And and I can't help but think that a year, two years, 10 years, 50 years from now, one of those kids is going to be in a in a pickle and think to themselves, I had a teacher who put my needs ahead of some arbitrary list of bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And um 
And and so you know I know the, the the podcast is called the art of teaching. I think you know it's part of the art of teaching of letting the kids in on the cosmic joke that is teaching sometimes. Yeah, and letting them know that 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 you prior prioritize them and learning something meaningful and creating a productive context for learning rather than just covering some yeah. arbitrary curricular topic. I mean, um, Gary, that takes bravery, doesn't it? Um, because I'm sure that, uh, and it also, I think it takes a respectful, not even a respectful, it takes a, a disrespect for the rules and an understanding that as the educator, we need to be the ones that are making the right decisions for the kids that we teach. And would you, would you say that you have, uh, held on to that, uh, rebellious streak throughout your career or, uh, has that, how has that served you that time in that wonderful teacher's class? Yeah, I think I think teaching is a moral calling. I, I think you know the answers to um, the answers to most questions plaguing education are theological in nature. They're yeah. either right or wrong. Yeah. And um, if I have any superpower, it's there's a whole lot of things that I don't care about at all that never enter my mind that a lot of other educators are terribly concerned with. Yeah. Would you mind elaborating like, on what some of those are? Sure. Classroom management. I never walk into a classroom worrying about classroom management because I never enter a classroom thinking I need to manage anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I and I and I put myself in deliberately complicated, complex, difficult situations regularly. Um, and when I was in Melbourne a few weeks ago, I ran a family math and art night involving computer programming at my favorite primary school and 55 P to six kids and their parents. So it was over a hundred people showed up on a Tuesday night on a school night during at 6 30 PM wow. for a couple of hours of, of, of computation and art um, and mathematics. And um, I love walking into crazy situations like that where I, where I have to, very quickly evaluate what's important here. What, how, what's the least that I can do so that they can do the most? How do, I, how do I share the two powerful ideas that I want the parents to leave with so that they understand the con have a context for understanding what I'm about to do with their kids and, and hold the kids' interest long enough to be able to show them how to do something that, that will that occupy them for two hours? Um, I've worked in settings with 300 kids that I've never met before. Um, I've I've convinced the state of Victoria to let me teach in the two worst schools. You pick them. I don't care. Um, I want a half a day every day with the same multi-age heterogeneous group of kids in schools that you've deemed a failure. My own doctoral research was based on creating a high-tech, multi-age, project-based, alternative learning environment inside a prison for teenagers where our kids were 13 to 21 and wow. had a laundry list of 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 alleged learning disabilities and pathologies applied to them so I, I i never and and in that in that context in a prison where amnesty international was accusing the state of torturing children and where we were supposed to be working with the worst kids in society when we were able to put their needs and interests and talents and curiosity talents and curiosity and passion ahead of some arbitrary list of stuff we had a scenario in which in three and a half years, not a single kid had to be removed from the classroom for discipline reasons. Wow. Um, so th this isn't just a, a, a theory of mine or, you know, a dream. It's, it's my lived experience.
Hmm. Um, so, you know, so when people are trying to figure out ways to use AI to grade children or use technology to do less grading or to be more efficient at grading, or they're concerned with, should we be doing formative assessment or summative assessment? Um, what if you did none? Maybe just, just if, you, if that seems too outrageous, maybe just use that as a thought experiment. Yeah. Um, but, but, but all assessment interrupts the learning process. Even if I just said, Hey, Matthew, what you doing? I just made you stop doing it. Now it's up to reasonable adults to determine what level of interruption is acceptable, but why do we accept? Why do we all just nod our heads and say, Oh, of course we need to be doing this. We need to be doing more of it and better, get better at it. Yeah. What if, what if we just shifted our focus to, to knowing the kids? And one of the reasons why Mr. Prale was a, such a solid history teacher was because he knew history as well. So I'm not I'm not diminishing the the role of of, of discipline knowledge or domain knowledge, um, but I think part of the art of teaching is knowing what you're supposed to be teaching and knowing the kids and finding a way to create a productive context for learning where those two things intersect. Yeah, I I I couldn't agree more, Gary, and and it it, it reminds me that that our job of educators is really not about content. Uh, it's really not about curriculum. It's about creating those spaces. Our primary job is to create those spaces in which young people can thrive and young people can um, engage in, in, in challenging ideas and to push themselves. It's it's almost as if the content is secondary. Would you would you agree somewhat? Yeah, but, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always focused on what can they do. Yeah. You know, I think schools have an obligation to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love. I love that. And to create a and to create a context in which they can become good at something. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I delight in the company of nutty kids. I, I, I have no interest in catching anyone doing anything. You know, yeah. sometimes I think I'm really sorry you weren't able to get that job as a prison guard that you so had your heart set on um, and you had to become a teacher. But I just don't understand why so many people find themselves in oppositional roles to, to their students. Yeah. I, I'm much, I am much happier and much more effective as an educator when I, when I view the, the children collegially yeah. in a collegial fashion. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it's, and it's take, you know, to, in, in ways big and small, you know, when I was working in the prison, if I was driving by a donut shop on the way to an office job, you know, um, Every couple of weeks, I might stop in and buy donuts and share them with my coworkers. I love that. Why wouldn't I do that with my students? Yeah, yeah. And, and and there were there were moments where some of this may have been you know teenage melodrama, but these these severely deprived kids would write them would would not only thank you, but they would save the donut for the kid who wasn't there at that moment and not and make sure there was one left and they would sometimes write you a thank you letter um and you know there were times where a kid would come to class all agitated and hungry and something bad had happened and you know i turned to one of my colleagues and said go get this kid something to eat and i remember in this one instance this girl wrote a thank you letter in which she said you know thank you thank you for getting me that sandwich it saved my life and like i you never know when that's hyperbole or true and it's not that hard to be nice to kids. Yeah. 
I absolutely agree. And 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 Gary, did you looking back to when you were at school, did you have any um idea that you'd be a professional uh, professor at a university? Does that did that, does that make sense looking back or is this where you thought you would be when you left school? Well, I'm not currently. Um, so yeah. truth, truth and uh, full disclosure. Um, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I should, you know, at the dinner conversation, you, you know, that you asked about, you know, hypothetical, I should have my father sit at the table because I need to ask him some questions. There was never any question I was going to go to university, even though I was a terrible student. Yeah. Because we have a fairly forgiving system in the United States where there's pretty much a place for anyone who wants to go. Um, now, granted, there's financial burdens associated with it and obstacles and such. But um, there was never any question I was going to go to college. Um, but I don't remember ever talking to my parents about what I was going to study or what I was going to become. Mm-hmm. It was always left up to me. and. I got a scholarship initially to go to Berkeley College of Music. And like I said, I pursued that for a while. And then I decided to leave there. And I changed schools a few more times. And when I decided I didn't have what it took to become a professional jazz musician, I I switched my my studies to elementary education. Um, and I've taught everything from prime from preschool through a doctoral level. Um, so it, it was just a no, I had no idea what I was going to do. I yeah. still have no idea what I'm going to do. Do you know what, Gary? It's really, um, it's actually really refreshing to hear that because the amount of people um, that I've had the privilege of interviewing and hold in really high esteem, such as yourself, it's very easy to put these people on pedestals and think they've always known what they wanted to do. And and there's me, uh, us mere mortals going, oh, my gosh, like, I don't really have a clear path here, but it's so wonderful to hear people like yourself saying that you you can actually just pursue your interest and your passion and it and 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 it be a positive thing and work out somehow in the long run. Um, I think it's it's really reassuring to hear that. No, it, it's yeah. I mean, I, one of the other things that I I really believe is that you know, <laughs> education isn't vocational in nature, yeah. um, and you know, and my three adult university educated children the only one who has lived on her own with health insurance a steady paycheck and her own apartment since the second she graduated was the art major wow interesting and she and she currently she currently earns a living crocheting isn't that interesting um, which is something she 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 actually is the some title like chief learning designer or um she's in charge of video production for a company called the Woobles that makes um, in, all in one little package, cro- incredibly adorable crochet kits with video instructions step by step on how to execute the pattern. Um, and she can edit video and she can cut code and she could speak and she can write. She has an incredibly strong liberal arts education. She worked in the nonprofit sector for a while. She went back to graduate school at the, um, our Institute of Chicago and got a master's degree in, in, in textiles. Um, but this, you know, her essay to get into university in the United States was, was about starting the crocheting and knitting club at her high school and how she had to overcome the, the remarkable bureaucratic hurdles, which as a parent, I wasn't even aware of until I read the essay. Um, 
getting permission and finding a sponsor and, and a room at a time. And then after she had taught the members of the club how to crochet, she wanted to introduce knitting and was told that they couldn't knit because you couldn't have knitting needles at school because they could be used as a weapon. And waking up at three o'clock in the morning um, in a cold sweat, worrying about her lesson plan for knitting a crocheting club the next day, because how am I going to knit without knitting needles? And then having the epiphany that if I go to the supermarket and sweet talk them at the takeaway counter into letting me take all of the chopsticks, I can bring those into school and put them into pencil sharpener and sharpen them and make them into knitting needles. And then we could knit with chopsticks and we'll solve all the problems. Um, and that essay and her being a good kid got her into seven of the best liberal arts universities in America, where she wow. earned a fantastic education. She ended up going to a place called Bard College and got a fantastic education. But it, it, there's a million of these stories of people who are successful at what they do um, by, by finding something that they're good at that someone will pay them to do that they could hopefully become great at. I love that. I, I think that's that's really inspiring. And what an, an incredible story of entrepreneurship. Uh, coming up to obstacles. Well, I should I should tell you the one, yeah. And, and the other piece of the other piece of that story, which is um, this is the only part that I can take any credit for. About a year ago, this company that she now works for called the Woobles was on Shark Tank in the United States. And uh, I, I and thought I it sounded, I thought it sounded familiar. Um, uh, I, yeah, I'm a I, fan yeah, of Shark Tank. It's on the front page of Amazon. It's on a pro, the front page of Amazon, and uh, I called Yvonne and I said, "Make yourself a job here." Wow! Wow! Um, now she works for them. I love that. That's such a wonderful story, Gary. Like I said, of, of uh, an ability of um, a really amazing individual to to overcome challenges and not take the first no as a as an answer. I think that's I think that's really wonderful. Um, uh, Gary, I do want to be um, I want to be respectful of your time, and I, I, it's been such a such a fascinating conversation. Just hearing some of the motivations behind um, some of your um, uh, some of your incredible work. And I just wanted to talk briefly um, about your recent work. Um, uh, so one that you co-authored, I think, with uh, Cynthia Solomon, um, or sorry, my mistake, she wrote the forward for it. And it's 20 things to do with a computer, forward 50. And I just love, um, uh, and full disclosure, I'm a disclosure, I'm about halfway through the book, so I haven't finished the whole book. Um, but for those people that um, uh, haven't read it, um, what's the main thesis behind that book, and and what did you hope to achieve with this project? Because it's a it's a really it's a really gripping read for someone like myself that doesn't have a computer science background. <sighs> so let's go back to that that dinner table conversation, that metaphor you used earlier. One of the greatest joys of my life is being able to introduce my heroes and sheroes um, <laughs> to other educators. Um, nothing, yeah. nothing brings me greater joy than creating the opportunity for um, educators such as yourself to spend time in a company of greatness. And that's one of the, the motivational forces behind my Constructing Modern Knowledge Summer Institute, um, where we not only have great educators, but people who are wildly successful at careers that their school never told them existed um, and who are technology pioneers. Yeah. In the case of 20 Things to Do with a Computer, in 1971, Seymour Papert and Cynthia Solomon wrote a paper called 20 Things to Do with a Computer that was quite extraordinary in that 
very few people had ever seen a computer at that point, let alone were thinking about children using computers, let alone were talking about kids programming computers, having agency over them, making things with them, and connecting them to external devices and robotics and, and, and communicating and playing with linguistics and, and geometry. And, um, and their paper was a provocation that predicted one-to-one -one computing, personal computing, the maker movement. Mm -hmm. um, you know, computer science for all. And it was rooted in Piaget and a strong progressive tradition and came out of the early work of the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT. And there was a stunning statement in that paper that said, um, we've done most of these activities already with primary school children. Yeah. So yeah. when I encounter a school that's struggling to come up with a tech plan in 2023, I often hand them a copy of the 1971 document and say, see how you measure up to this. Mm. Um, the motivation behind the book was to celebrate the, the 50th anniversary of that remarkable paper by asking some of the pioneers who were around contemporaneously during that time and who have done the work ever since, as well as feature some, some really creative educators and, um, and thought leaders who are who are working today um, to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I often say that it, it, the key to improving education is to find a cure for amnesia. We we keep discovering that which already exists each time with diminished expectations. Yeah, wow. And when a school principal says to me, "If only we knew what to do." I, I like to suggest, you know, swing by my house. I'll lend you one of the thousands of books behind me um, that all will tell you what to do. Like I said, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We know what to do. And so it was important for me to honor my friends, um, Seymour and Cynthia, who wrote that 1971 paper. And at, at, in this tumultuous time, in this sort of idea-averse time, to remind people that um, educational technology attracted my interest in the early 80s because that's where the smartest, most radical, most mm. social justice-minded educators were. Yeah. Um, and it and it's we should return to that as again. I mean, I, I joke that that book is going to be really big a hundred years from now. Yeah. Um, I think so. I, I I I mean, I'm spending a lot of my time archiving and sharing work that would otherwise be would, would otherwise would have disappeared. I run a website called the daily Papert. That's the largest archive of Seymour Papert's work, yeah. both written work as well as audio and video that I keep finding and pay to transcribe and to share. Yes. Um, and I've been, I've been finding a lot of the, the seminal educational computing work um, because I, I think it's, it's important for people to understand that, that we've solved these problems before, and now we have this wondrous technology that supercharges all the things we, mm. we could have ever dreamed of, and yeah. and we're we're wasting all this potential. I mentioned you know Jonathan Kozel earlier, and one of my favorite comments from him is you know you're only seven once, and there there needs to be some urgency to our work for those of us who are in, involved in teaching kids or teaching teachers to teach kids that. If we we can't just keep saying next year or maybe maybe later, um, 
we have these wondrous opportunities that exist now, not just to teach kids the things we've always wanted them to know, maybe with greater efficiency or comprehension or um, stickiness, but there are chances to learn and do and know and share and love and and create in ways that were unimaginable before. I love that. And again, I, I, I'm fascinated by this topic of the art of teaching because I think, um, sadly, that notion is is missing from the rhetoric around school reform and 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 innovation and improvement that you you almost never hear a discussion of, of of the art of teaching you know teacher preparation has been reduced to compliance phonics lesson plan writing maybe diversity equity and inclusion um but when I studied to be a primary school teacher, it was required by law to learn to play the piano a little bit and to teach science and maths and, and social studies and phys ed and take the kids outside and um, and and pro- and create projects and use manipulatives and read literature. And that required you to know your students and to blur the artificial boundaries between subject areas. And and we're we're continuously eroding those opportunities from from the experience of of teachers and kids that we, we're suffering from this this spiral where we remove agency from teachers and then they become less thoughtful, more automat or, or more automatic, um, more mechanical in their processes. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. guess what? The results suffer. And then the system responds by removing more agency from them. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's impossible to make an Uncle Tom's Cabin film in seventh grade and read a book that wasn't on the official list of, of junk textbooks because, it w- first of all, there's no time. But more importantly, it w- hasn't occurred to anyone to do that. And yeah. when your school, you know, I, I, I'm horrified by primary schools that are like little TAFEs or, or universities now where every 40 minutes kids move on to something else and where teachers are specializing as if you're incapable of teaching reading and maths to a seven-year-old. Um, that and, and you have to have a reading coach come in to help you teach a kid to read. Um, there's all these intrusions and interruptions that ensure that projects are impossible, that connections between people and concepts and domains and skills yeah. are difficult to make, that kids never get to work on something long enough for them to become good at it or to fall in love with it. And then we have the audacity to pathologize them and, and accuse them of having deficit disorders or attention mm-hmm. deficit disorders. Um, so. I, I think a lot about this this notion of the art of teaching, and I think it's a lost art, and we need to redouble our efforts to to ensure that it that it makes a comeback. Yeah, absolutely, Gary, and um, I I I couldn't agree more. And and um, it's funny when I named the podcast, um, I really wanted to bring back some of that kind of wonder and excitement and innovation and just awe back into our profession and I and my hope is that that through conversations um with people all around the world like yourself that that if we can invest something back into that discussion I would be uh, immensely proud and um I, I just have one um uh, one final question for you Gary I mean there's 
You've covered so many topics um, uh, today. Almost uh, each topic is worthy of a podcast episode itself. Uh, but um, anytime, yeah. If I if I was sitting down with you, Gary, and I was just about to set foot in a classroom, I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed. I've got my teaching certificate ready to go. Um, what would be a a short piece of advice that you would give me um, so that I can be that teacher that truly makes a difference? Less us, more them. And if any time you think you should intervene on behalf of some educational transaction, it's worth asking you the question, is there less that I can do and more that they can do? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't you know, agree. I, 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 I was, you know, I, I, I recently had, you know, worked in a school in, in Melbourne where I was teaching computer programming and physical computing, you know, micro bit robotics. Um, the first and second graders who I never met before who had never seen anything like it. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned something on social media about it. And people immediately wanted to see my lesson plans or know what resources I was using. And now I've, I've got a, a lifetime's worth of experience and a bag of tricks that I can draw upon. Um, but the thing that I loved about that experience, if I, if I put my learner hat on was what's the smallest seed I could plant that generates the most beautiful blossom, the largest garden. I love that. How how do I have the discipline? How do I have the discipline to shut up? Something I haven't done here, but how do I have the discipline to give the kids a minute's worth of information? Yeah. So that they could then spend hours or perhaps days or months or with playing with some ideas. Wow. And and then the art of teaching comes back to noticing when the energy level dips and intervening or observing some kids breakthrough and, and announcing it for others so they can learn from them or yeah. answering a specific question with as little with as little interruption as possible so that the kids, that. kids don't lose their train of thought and continue working on what they're doing um but but it was having the restraint to sort of trust the kids and to respect the culture of childhood um so that they could do the thing. And, you know, I, I, I got stuck into someone a couple of days ago. Oh, no, Education Week had an article about more effective icebreakers for PD. You know, how to have non-cringeworthy icebreakers. You know, and I said, no, do the thing. Don't warm up to the thing or icebreak to the thing. Don't talk about the thing. Do the thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, we're constantly inventing levels of of artifice that that are unnecessary so you know so I, I i you know even when you're you know people are talking about social emotional learning if your school is investing in social emotional learning the damage is already done if we didn't make kids feel miserable we wouldn't have to treat them for being miserable hmm. if if we my, my 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 last piece of advice for that young bushy teacher would be see what you can do to create an environment where the kids wake up in the middle of the night with a burning desire to get back to class to continue on working on something that matters to them where school is the place where you gain benefit from being co-located in the same space at the same time and where you wake up every morning and where you wake up every morning and ask yourself how do i make this the best seven hours of a kid's life fantastic gary that is a my mind is spinning and you're um 
your passion for teaching and teachers uh, is contagious. And, and I thank you for um, I, I thank you for the decades and decades and decades of investment into our wonderful profession. And my hope is that there would be somebody driving to work over here in Sydney or over in London, and they would hear this interview and it would inspire them to be that teacher um, that truly makes a difference. So I, I can't thank you enough, Gary, for um, for taking the time to talk with me today. And I would I would love at some point to be able to do a round two because, like I said, we we have covered Absolutely. so much um, in this in this wonderful discussion. Um, thank you so much for your time. I, I truly appreciate it. No, thank you. And I'm happy to work with schools and show you what this looks like in practice. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode. Music